So I always used to say that I, if someone asked me if I was a spy, I would say yes, because it is the perfect cover <laughs> for being a spy, because you wouldn't say it. So many, it's like, yeah, every time I'm on a panel, they're like, are any of you a spy? And I'm like, yes, me. Hello, and welcome to The Conversation Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Nadine Matheson. As always, I hope that you're well. I hope that you've had a good week. I'm currently looking out of my window and it is miserable. It's just raining. It's wet. It's cold. It's miserable. And you know what also added to my pain this week? It was the fact that I watched the movie Madam Web. And you know how much of a comic book fan I am. And I love seeing comic book characters, I don't know, reinterpreted, all being seen in a different medium. And, you know, they don't have to be major characters. They can be minor characters like Madam Web. But the most important thing is that you tell a good story and that the story makes sense. And in this case, it's the only time I've given a movie one and a half out of ten. I, it was just painful and I just feel the need to share that with you because all my family and friends have had to listen to me moan about this film. <laughs> Even my students, the baby lawyers I was teaching this week or last week actually had to listen to me moan about this film. But what was amusing is that one of the baby lawyers did stand up and as part of his presentation, because we were doing advocacy and communication skills, as part of his presentation, he felt the need and he did a good job of defending Madam Web. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to share that. But what was also good last week was that I received a physical proof copy of the third book in the Inspector Angelica Henley series, The Kill List. And it's so exciting to have a physical book in your hand and to see your name on the book cover and to see your dedication. I dedicated the book to my brothers, which they obviously they love that fact. And this isn't the final copy of the book that will be on the bookshelves, but we're one step closer. Now, there aren't that many copies of the proof of the kill list floating around. And for those who don't know, a proof is a advanced reading copy of the book. But if you sign up to my newsletter, so go to www.nadinematheson.com. If you sign up, you can enter an exclusive giveaway to win an advanced copy of The Kill List. So go to www.nadinematheson.com and then you will save my next newsletter, which will contain details of the giveaway. Now let's get on with the show. Today's guest is author Tim Glister. I first met Tim back in 2021 when we appeared on a panel of debut authors. It was Tim Glister, Abigail Dean, Femi Coyote and myself. Tim was talking about his debut novel, Red Corona, which was the first book in the Richard Knox spy thriller series. A Lol Traitor was the second book and A Game of Deceit is the third book in the series and all three are available for you to buy now. In today's conversation, Tim Glister and I talk about finding a new tribe as an author, his own journey from being a literary agent to becoming an author and what it really means to be a good author. Now, as always, sit back, go for a walk and enjoy the conversation. Tim Glister, welcome to the conversation. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) You are welcome. Right, first question. 
I was promised a free form structure and we're straight in. Question one. Yeah. There's no structure. Okay. Is there a piece of advice that you gave as an agent that resonates differently with you now that you're an author? Oh, that is actually a very good question. I told mm. you it was good. <laughs> yeah, the the advice that I always gave people was advice that I had learned myself on a on a screenwriting course in New Zealand in 2004, which was always know your ending. That was that was the biggest piece of advice, and actually kind of the only writing advice that I was ever given. And it's it's very useful because it gives you something to aim for. It gives you a goal. I think when you're writing thrillers or crime novels, it's really important because those aren't the kind of books that you can just kind of let your characters guide you on a adventure because you have to hit certain beats. However, as I have progressed and developed as a writer, one of the things I've really noticed is how much work I am doing now, three books in on understanding character. I was so concerned with plot structure, making sure that if I have multiple strands, they all come together in neat ways, you know, thinking, thinking literarily, but also cinematically, making sure I'm hitting the right beats, that it's taken me a bit of time to make myself feel comfortable that my characters are not simply puppets I control, but are and should be living, breathing creations who can mess around with those fixed plot points that you want to hit. Yeah, it's funny. It feels like three books in, I'm starting to learn how to write. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Ask you. Are you surprised that you're taking you three books? And you're like, oh, this is how I'm supposed to. Be. Oh, that's how you do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess. And actually, I would, I would, I would say, and this, this feels like the kind of the admission an author shouldn't make. But <laughs> so I've, I've written three novels in my Richard Knox series of 1960s spy thrillers. First one, it was. You know, that you love it the way you love your first book. That was Ray Corona. The second one, A Loyal Traitor, I wrote kind of in isolation. I didn't know how successful Red Corona would be. I didn't know how people would respond to it because it was delayed because of the pandemic. So I was writing book two before book one came out. And I didn't understand why book two resonated with as many people as it did when it did come out. People, you know, people were incredibly complimentary about it. And it was, you know, it was nominated for, for Steel Dagger, which was absolutely insane. But I realized it took me a while to realize it was because I had dared to go more into the depth of the characters. Mm. Not in a particularly happy way. I mean, my 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 conceit was what happens when spies are depressed. So I've got a bunch of spies running around London in, in 1966 being feeling quite sorry for themselves. But it was that depth of character, that emotion, that sense of motivation underneath the plot, which it took me a while to realize was what resonated with people. 
So, you know, yeah, it, it, it does feel like I'm learning what I'm doing as I go. <laughs> Isn't it weird though that, you know, when you look at all these, like how to look at all these, how to book, perhaps can't how to book, how to write books, <laughs> I can't even speak today. But when you look at all these how to write books and they break it down into, you know, plot and characterization and setting. Yeah. Isn't it odd that character you characterization didn't even. Yeah, I don't know. Like I skipped it. I st- like, you know, like, yeah. Skipped every like every, into the woods, you know, the art of screenwriting, the science of storytelling, you know, the hero's journey. Just cared about where they were going. Yeah, it's and it's been really interesting. And I've made over the last year, I've made a really conscious effort to get into kind of understanding more analytically character archetypes and things like that. And sometimes it's really refreshing to see where i've done it intuitively and kind of like oh i can map this character against that and it works and i have done everything that i should have done i just didn't realize i was doing it but it's also yeah it's also quite quite concerning that as a professional i was just ignoring you know the second chapter of every guidebook i was supposed to be using who needs character who needs yeah. character just, <laughs> we just need to skip and keep going Welcome to the conversation with the fraud, Tim Glister. <laughs> We're talking about fraud because talking about fraud. <laughs> I was talking to other authors recently. We've been talking about imposter syndrome. Do you think, well, did it ever come into your mind, imposter syndrome, when you realise, oh, I've overlooked this important aspect? So, I mean, I always, I mean, not for that. I've always had imposter syndrome. I've, I mean, I. Back when I agented, I worked with the likes of Charles Cumming, Henry Port, Ellie Griffiths when she was starting out, people who are massive, incredible talents. And it took me the decade after which I left publishing to kind of have the gall and the gumption to try writing full-length fiction myself. So it, it that took me a long time to get over. And I wrote my first book almost entirely in secret, disappeared off the face of the planet. Friends wondered where I'd gone. And then we all did. <laughs> but, <laughs> but even even now, like I I when I'm kind of lucky enough to get invited to festivals, I sit on panels with legitimately successful, famous, regarded spy writers and i just kind of can't believe that i'm also there i don't know why i find it so fascinating that you know you worked as and you know you 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 work in marketing advertising now but when you Mm. you had that career as an agent and i said all that advice you would have given to your authors and you know how it works but yet when you put yourself in their place it's kind of like everything you learn just disappeared yeah it's it's totally the the only like i'd say well not the only but the the main the main thing that stayed with me positively is i remember my boss when i was when i was agenting she worked a lot with people who worked in advertising or were journalists and she said the reason she did it is because they know it's a profession and now that and i never really understood that at the time because I was always like, if you've got a book deal, you'd write the book, you'd deliver it on time, you'd do everything you're supposed to. Now that I work in 
advertising and I have to hit deadlines and I have contractual obligations, I do apply that to my writing. So, you know, I do, I do make sure that I hit my deadlines. I do make sure that I, that I, you know, feed in my amends that I'm, that I'm a good author. But yeah, apart from, <laughs> apart from that, everything else is kind of, yeah, that's that strange disparity where one half of your brain knows what you're doing and the other half is like, how am I getting away with this? <laughs> it's a lot of talking to yourself, isn't it? Like so talking yourself to- around. Yeah, talk so much talking to yourself about your books. But also, <laughs> I think I said to someone, you have, you kind of have to be your own therapist. Yeah. And when you're a writer, to talk yourself through, not even necessarily like completing a project, but even just starting a project mm. and letting yourself feel okay about your first three chapters possibly being shit. You might need to come back to them at the end. You will come back to them at the end. <laughs> but yeah, it's, and it's that, and the, the further you get into writing, I guess, hopefully you develop a kind of, and that's why it is a good comparison to therapy, I think. You get this kind of objective, I guess, authorial voice. So you are going go, you're still going to go through that creative graph of this is amazing oh is it okay oh god this is terrible oh i might be able to save it oh no it's dreadful oh actually it's fine you're still going to go through that journey yeah but another bit of your brain is going to be watching you go through that journey from above and saying you know it's going to be fine you know you're going to get there you've done this before you know, 70% of the way through the manuscript, you are going to feel terrible. So then it will end and it'll be great. Well, you know, that's basically the, the three-act structure, which you just well, yes. <laughs> like, through that inciting incident. And it's like, oh, we're going up this roller coaster. Oh, it's, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> oh my God, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It, it's looking better. Yeah. So this thing, I'm great with structure. It's character. Yeah. <laughs> Before, you know, way back when, when you were just like Tim Glister at uni. And even though we are where we are now, you being three books in with your, with your Knox series. But was this what you wanted to do? Or did you just think, I'll just be an agent. I'll be on that side of publishing. I'll stay on that side of the wall. I, I think if I was being super deeply honest, I've always, mm-hmm. I've always had ambitions to be some sort of storyteller whether that took the form of novel writing or or tv or film i that's what i love and you would have loved to have been able to do there was a point when i was at school that my parents figured i'd go to drama school because i didn't read that much i'm not one of those people that comes you know, comes to festivals and says, I was reading Agatha Christie when I got out of the pram. I was always consuming stories. Yeah. I was always, you know, I was always consuming stories, but they weren't, but it was kind of platform agnostic, by which I mean, I read a lot of comics and watched a lot of Star Trek. Um, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so I'm, I'd always kind of harbored secret ambitions to be some form of storyteller. And then going to, you know, going to university to study English is is getting to know how to you know, use rhetoric, tell compelling arguments, make cases, and also mm-hmm. read and discover amazing stories. The the agenting job was 
I mean, you can pretend it wasn't inevitable, but you know, I've studied English. I worked in libraries. I worked in a bookshop. I was going to go. You're going there. <laughs> you know, it was. Um, it was. You know, the the universe was pointing me in that direction, and it did. Nice, you know, and 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 I loved that. I loved helping people craft their stories. What I struggled with was when I couldn't sell them. And, you know, it's it's difficult enough. And I think every writer has that kind of white whale project or albatross around your neck that you can never let go and you can never get quite right. It's difficult enough to deal with that as a writer. It's also very difficult to spend six months a year plus helping someone craft and hone their writing into something that you think is brilliant and that the market might think is brilliant but because of budgeting restraints or publishing schedules they just aren't going to buy and i my colleagues were able to have those conversations with people and kind of not spiral into depression over it i found myself unable to do that so eventually i was like i need to i need to step away and then came back as an author (laughs) (laughs) but i was gonna ask you know when you're in that being an agent like how do you manage that type of rejection because it's like a double pronged rejection because it's not just the authors it's also yours as well and I don't know how you can separate yourself well obviously you said you couldn't separate yourself I couldn't there's there are some people there are some people that do and you know great there's but but it is that, that role of the agent is kind of you know having an agent is an incredible achievement having having an agent who is like super hot and is very it, it like in fashion at the moment makes a difference so it is the you know the, the the agent plays a part as well as the book but then so does the editor so does the marketing department so does the cover but yeah that that rejection is it's tough it's fantastic training because i think all creative people it's a life of rejection. Mm, it's, it's always fair. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, my therapy session is actually on Wednesday. Um, right, yes, I'm fine. But you know, you know, you have, you know, I, writing a book. You, you, when you said earlier, kind of, you know, telling yourself it's okay to try and write a book. Like writing a book is a hell of an accomplishment. It takes time. <laughs> it takes tenacity. It's difficult. You're going to get into like cul-de-sacs you're gonna have to get you know so you have to have this incredible resilience and part of that resilience is founded by the rejection you experience along the way and you can either turn around and say oh actually no i feel bad this isn't for me which is what i did with agenting yeah or you say okay what's underneath this what can i learn from it how can i improve my writing and make you know and get to that next level which i hope i'm doing with my writing it's all you know whilst you're talking you're talking about rejection as an agent and i was thinking about my other profession like being a lawyer and i just thought to myself i'd never i'd never have to deal with rejection in my job as a lawyer because if i lose a case it's not a rejection of me it's a rejection of the case that I put yeah. forward on behalf of my client, but it's it's nothing to do with me personally. Because it just could be that the prosecution's case was really, really strong. 
in those circumstances. So when it's done, I'm like, oh, well, the jury said guilty. Yeah. I that's advise the, yeah, you responsibility. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say happy days, but off we go to the next Yeah, one. off we go. That's the Bring thing, on. yeah. Yeah. I I would, being I, an author. It, mm. It's that, that thing of like the, this is this is off topic, but that, that yeah, the thing with Ali, like Ali McBeal t- taught us, if you were of a certain age, that it all came down to how kind of impassioned and compelling the closing statement yeah. was. And you're like, that's not how it works. It's it's literally like we've assembled this amount of information. This person has assembled that amount of information. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's literally that's it. Yeah. That's the long and the short of it. But when I'm teaching them advocacy and I show clips from this um program called the murder trial, and they're talking to the prosecutor, yeah, the dismissed advocate, they're talking to him. And I ask him, you know, can a case be swung on a closing speech? And he says no. He doesn't yeah. think so. Because yeah. you said this, you've done, you've already put all the, all the evidence is out there. You're now asking your jury to make a decision on what they've heard and what they've seen. But what I say at the end of it, yeah, I can do it. I've done really good speeches, but I've, you know, I've almost convinced myself. But <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not no, it's, it's not down. No, it's, it's not down to that. Yeah. So what did all this teach you about yourself when you finally transferred or transitioned into that role of author? Um, author. I uh this is this will sound quite uh, soppy. <laughs> you can be soppy. I mean, and it wasn't it wasn't really until until I think the second Harrogate I went to, because I went to I went to the Pingdemic Harrogate, which was all a bit Oh, was that that one? <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, and you play a part in this story, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. okay. I was I was at the second Pingdom. I was at the first the that was my first Harrogate as an author. And I was just like, I'll just go and kind of show face. Wasn't on a panel or anything, but kind of you know see see if if there is a place for me in this community. And by the next Harrogate, the the following year, I was like, I feel like I've found my tribe. It was so, it was, I, and like, and my tribe, not kind of, and apologies for people that I work with, but not people who I get on with at work when I have my work hat on. Yeah. But people who have similar interests in me as me, similar ambitions as me, a similar approach and perspective as me. And it just felt, wonderful and authentic and i felt like i wasn't wearing a hat i felt like it was me and i absolutely loved that and i wasn't expecting that quite so much possibly because when i went into writing because i was writing into the espionage genre set in the 60s there's fundamentally kind of like a little bit of character creation because people are like, you know, why, why does this man who's now in his 40s writing about the 60s, why is he so obsessed with like old retro espionage? What's going on? And I knew that I was I was entering a pantheon that was already established. So I felt like I had to behave a certain way and, you know, comport myself as a spy author. But then you get to go to festivals and meet people and you're like, oh, you're humans and you're real. <laughs> and we have, you know, we have shared fundamental interests, yeah. you know, and attitudes and sense of humor. And that like, that's been, that's been the nicest, loveliest thing about, about becoming an author. 
Isn't it weird though that we go like when you know we move into this new field and we go to these events and it basically comes down to you being in the playground when you're six, wondering if you're going to make friends. Massively, and you're sat there and you're kind of like, oh, that, there's that guy over the, the other side of the drinks tent. I'm like, I love that book. Should I go over? Should <laughs> <laughs> like, I go and talk I, to them? And also, you realise there are people, other authors, who've been thinking the same thing that you've been thinking. Like, oh my god. Yeah. Am I going to make friends? How am I going to fit in? And then you realise you do find your tribe. Uh, I had a question just based on what you were saying about being on panels and mm. being on these pie, I said pie, being on these pie panels, talking about spy, no, spy novels. It, was that, did that feel like a different sort of imposter syndrome? You know when you're saying about, oh, how are these people talking about all the books they've read from them, they're like six. Yeah. reading all of Agatha Christie and you're like yeah, and I'm like and I've started reading some now yeah <laughs> yeah Hugh the, that was that was also a sense of so so I have learned over the course of panels that you you have to you got to tread a fine line between making sure that you get your time and are heard mm. and don't swamp the this the panel by giving long winded you know because it's not all about you there's probably like three other people on that stage but also not saying anything stupid so i've learned i've learned the longer i there that i quite enjoy that kind of the quiet cut and thrust because while we are all friends and we're all having a wonderful chat we do also want our time but i have had a, i have had specific examples which Oh, like the imposter syndrome is is hilarious. I was on a panel with a man whose name I cannot remember, and I should because this is this is a great anecdote. So I should at least name the man. <laughs> I was in it was a crime fest, and I was talking about the Gary Powers U two overflight incident, which was when the American U two spy plane was supposed to fly all the way over Russia, piloted by Francis Gary Powers. It was shot down. And he ended up being kind of the whole thing was revealed. He ended up being kind of a prisoner of the Cold War. And he is the man that was exchanged on the Bridge of Spies. So this this man has an incredibly important role in the Cold War. And I connected it to my story because it was the it was the the shuttering of the U-2 spy plane program, which led to the development of the Corona satellite program, which is in large part what my first novel is about. So I was explaining Gary Powers as, you know, as an interesting kind of figure in history that had been a bit of an inspiration to me. And the American espionage author sat to my left was like, yeah, I was, I was working for the US Air Force at a base in West Germany when that happened. And I heard Gary Powers announcing over his radio that he'd been hit and was falling down and was going to be crash landing in Russian territory. So I'm like, oh, okay, so I need to hand my anecdote to you because it's yours. You you actually lived it. You were there. I just read about it and thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that that kind of that kind of thing can come up when you're dealing with other spy writers. Yes. It's a humbling. <laughs> it's a humbling experience. <laughs> yeah, it's where it's where I realized that I have I have come into the genre as a fan primarily rather than anything else. 
But how many people are going to admit to being a spy, Tim? Well, so I always used to say that I, if someone asked me if I was a spy, I would say yes, because it is the perfect cover <laughs> for being a spy, because you wouldn't say it. So many, it's like, yeah, every time I'm on a panel, they're like, are any of you a spy? I'm like, yes, me. <laughs> Math <laughs> is funny. <laughs> I've got to leave at four. Would you ever well? move away? <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever move away from the genre? Spy genre? I I mean I love it because I love how and I think I think anyone writing in genre would say there's a verb genre. The genre is a framework to play with. There are so many stories you can tell within espionage. You know, it can be that big, bombastic Tom Clancy, Vince Flynn stuff. It can be far more cerebral or emotional. I don't know if you've ever read or seen All the Old Knives. It's an incredible novel mm. and an incredible film. It's on Amazon Prime with Tandre Newton and Chris Pine. And it's about lovers who are spies. And betrayal and you know and and romance and stuff and it's fantastic so i definitely want to explore more of the genre what you can do with it what you can do with that framework i love the idea of writing a spy novel that people don't realize is a spy novel you know and and i think you i think you get that across genres when you're kind of like well actually this you know this detective is that you know if it hits all the beats and it works with the structure, why can't it be something that looks completely different but operates as a spy novel? I think that's that's something I'd be interested in exploring. I love the idea of writing psychological thrillers. I need to work out character first. Because I think it's important. Um, <laughs> but that's that's you know that that's that's an ambition. What about you? Would you would you step away from police procedure? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think so. I would because I, start, I did start writing a legal thriller, but then I said imposter syndrome is such a funny thing because I'm like, that's what I do. You know, that's why I yeah. spent twenty years and, and I did, working did in you, law. <laughs> did you then get to that kind of like, oh well, that wouldn't happen, so I can't, yeah, was, or you get? It wasn't that it wouldn't happen. It was. It was like trying to make it convincing that this actually would happen. Like, so these things will happen in the legal world, but yeah. not making it sound like you're just reading a legal textbook and just here's a scenario, if that makes sense. Yeah. There was a lot, there was a lot of that. And there's a lot of, okay, I'm writing about my world that I've lived in for, or worked in for 20 years. I'm now not even, I'm now not thinking about the reader. I'm thinking about people who worked in that world with me and if they read it and if they would be convinced by it so it's a lot or they go that's me (laughs) yeah literally yeah that's me or you got that wrong because as well because i find when i'm writing police procedures i have to uh, i said sometimes the law and the plot doesn't fit and you end up writing yourself into corners because you're trying to stick with the law so there's been occasion a lot of occasions i've had to like bend it and twist it to make it fit with the story and i was like well can i get away with that if i'm writing a legal because mm. some lawyer that I know is going to call up going to Dean. That would not happen. Yeah. So there's, there's too much mental work. There's too much mental arithmetic that I have to go through. Yeah. When writing illegal. And what I do want to write a psychological thriller. Yeah. I mean, I but you said it's a character. You know, 
there there it is that's oh god I'm looking at Tim's. Yes, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, just this postcard. Yeah, because you can't see. <laughs> no, you can't see. Yeah, <laughs> but just you know, just imagine that meme from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," where the guy's like banging <laughs> the against the cardboard with the red lines. That needs to come down. That's had its. That's had its time. Um, I can't do the corkboard thing. I've tried it. I've tried the corkboard whiteboard, putting cards up, post-it notes, no, post-it yeah. notes, post-it notes up on the board. And I, it, yeah, I kind of get into it for like the first day. Then after that, I'm like, I, I can't, it, my brain doesn't work. There's like too much going on visually in front of me. me yeah. so I, I, I've only just started doing this and I don't know if it's going to work. I mainly did it because <laughs> I'm lucky enough to now have a spare room that I can call an office. So I'm like, well, yeah. I'm going to put officey things in it. Um, <laughs> And I also, yeah, and also, I wanted something to be behind me when I'm on video calls because I've never been able to arrange my house so that I have like the beautiful bookcase behind me. None of my, none of the rooms that I've ever inhabited have been able to do that. So I'm like, well, this is something at least. Uh, it's something beautiful. Yeah. You have to be careful because I remember um, my cousin was watching me. I was, doing, I, was, I was doing someone else's podcast, or yeah, I was doing someone else's podcast interview, and it was a video. <laughs> he called me up, and she's like, "It looked like there was a big stick coming out of your head." And that's all I'm going <laughs> to focus on. And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And I realised I had a plant beside behind me. They had one of those supporting sticks. Oh, uh, so just... that's all she. That's all she could see. So I was like, "Yeah, you need to think about." your background was there anything that surprised you about publishing when you was on this side i say this side of the fence <laughs> i would so i my experience of publishing has been quite unvarnished for better or worse mm. because my agent and my publisher know that i worked in the industry they know that I know how things work. So they're like blushes have not been spared. Things have not been sugarcoated. Sometimes it would have been nice. To have things <laughs> sugar-coated. Going off. Sometimes I'm like, do you think maybe yeah, you could a little, make it a little bit sweet? Like, a, a little bit of sugarcoating would be nice, but I have also fully appreciated the directness because I think they know that publishing does sometimes have that kind of, it speaks in more hopeful terms than realistic ones. And I think they know that I will see through that. So they do, they are quite direct and straightforward, which is wonderful for the most part. What, what really surprised me actually coming back into the industry 10 years later was that the contracts look exactly the same as when I left. Really? Still, depending on depending on the publisher, they will still have like this massive, reactive, scary page of text about ebook rights. And I'm like, when I was leaving publishing, I was sitting there thinking, why why are all of these contracts still talking about you know the the perfect royalty rate for a hardback when this book is going to be published into paperback with a supermarket deal that's mm. a special sale that comes with its own ro- different rate anyway 
And then they came back 10 years later and the contracts still the same. The same. They all look the same. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's that's where we're at. Fine. And they still take months, even though they are even though they are all written the same and look the same and have the same terms. Because if you, you know, an agent, well, when a, a publisher is always very reticent to change any foundational royalty rate or anything like that with an agent because as soon as they do that sets a new precedent so i yeah i was i was kind of surprised to come back and see that all of this this documentation and paperwork was still the same i mean you sign them on adobe on the cloud now which is fantastic but it's the same (laughs) yeah it's it's the same it's the same 25 page document i found i think what i found frustrating was that when i went into the contracts obviously i go into it with my lawyer hat on and then I'm like, why, why are things moving so slowly? Because I'm used to having, this is the day, so things need to be done on X date and X date and X date. So and if I don't, there are consequences, which is basically a judge shouting at me as to why these things haven't been done. And then you think, okay, I can just transfer these rules to publishing. And you're like, no, these rules are not transferable. It's like they no. work on their own little universe. Yeah. And also, and I, I friends, yeah, I, we take you you obviously take contracts seriously because of of the the nature of your other job i was trained to Mm. read through contracts when i was an agent so i i read through them yeah again taking that kind of professional business approach yeah but but i have friends who can't get their head around that nuance of publishing where it's like yeah no the the actual contract is this like woolly thing that will materialize in six months you know the deal memo the terms the announcement that's what makes it real and they're like but it's not legally real and it's like well no it's just the paperwork you know the contract's just the paper you know you know we've all we've all agreed and they 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 find it very they find it very odd (laughs) that it is you know it works on its own timeline yeah, that's it, definitely. But I think it's a lot a lot of that response as a read as a reader, as an author, is that I've always said it's because you come to it, if you haven't worked in the industry, if your only association with the industry is you walking into a bookshop or as I said, watching a TV movie about an, an author whose editor has sent her to a castle to write her book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm living my draft early. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll send you on holiday. But if that's your only exposure. I said I think you come into it into the industry, I couldn't even reader glasses on, you know, because your whole viewpoint is as a reader, not as an author, not as it's a business. Yeah. And, and even, you know, and it's a, and it's, and it's a large business because, you know, even, mm. even as an author, you still have to remind yourself, it's kind of like, okay, so my book is finished now. So why is it coming out in 2026? Are you, <laughs> are you like, there are, there are reasons. Yeah, they may not be reasons that are good enough for you to accept, but there are reasons <laughs> that, you know, they have to make the thing. You know, there's only so many shelves in bookstores. You know, there are there are reasons. But I think what it is when you get when you find yourself in that situation, you're so caught up in the fact that someone wants my book, that they want my book and they say they love me and they love my book. But if you love me so much, why are we waiting? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. I don't, I don't Let's get married now. And I I think I I think it's an interesting 
role that the author has to play that when they're in that situation when there's like you know either a gap between signature and publication or just a gap between publications is how you make sure that the love and enthusiasm remains because mm. publishing is an underpaid industry that relies on goodwill and love and passion and editors booksellers sales reps foreign rights execs they have new stuff coming in all the time that they have to deal with so you have to work out how to balance being the super enthusiastic author the good author the author that wants to make sure that everything is done professionally and well and all avenues are exploited without coming across like a diva but then also <laughs> making sure that you aren't you know making sure that you aren't forgotten yeah I think that's the thing. I, I remember saying to some, like saying to some of my mentees is that, yeah, you kind of have to remember that next Thursday, there will be another bunch of yeah. books <laughs> being released. And the Thursday after that, there's another new book. So I, in not a horrible way, but I think I just try and be very pragmatic about yeah. things. I'm like, your window, you, you have a week in which to try and blow up. And then after you just trying to maintain it. But and I suppose, I suppose we don't want to think about competition, but it's there. It's there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's a Owen Matthews, who is a phenomenal Soviet expert journalist. He wrote his first two 1960s set Soviet spy thrillers were very similar to mine. <laughs> <laughs> and they came out at relatively similar times. Isn't that um, okay? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, oh, and he is, you know, he's he's an expert in the phrase. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but then also as well, I remember when we first met, which was on um, an interview. Obviously, it was during the pandemic. Our books were got. It's all like our, there's like a few weeks between our books being yeah. published in terms of date. I just remember you sitting there, and your face was like, "Yeah, my book's called Red Corona." Yeah. <laughs> 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 I don't even laugh that's... about it now. <laughs> when you were able to laugh about it, at the I time. mean, I could, I could laugh because I was drunk. Like my, my yes, like my <laughs> unboxing video. Yeah, so Red Corona, my first novel, was supposed to come out in May 2020. Obviously, it didn't. It ended up coming out in end of January, start of February, February 2021. Yeah. Yeah, st still in a lockdown, still managed to hit a lockdown because of that surprise extra one. But yeah, the video of me doing my unboxing for the hardcovers of Red Corona in effectively in lockdown in my garden, I like my housemate had poured me the largest gin for it because I was like, these might at the time, I was like, these might be the only 16 copies that end up in existence of this book. It might get pulped. Like, we don't know how things are going to go. Yeah, what was what was lovely is that by the time it came out, everyone either didn't realise or was very sympathetic and saw the funny side along yeah. with me. So I was actually, you know, I was able to say kind of like at least it, you know, at least some people found it funny. So there was a little bit of joy out of it. Yeah, if it if it ever gets in like the opportunity, maybe it'll you know if we do a tenth anniversary, maybe it'll get renamed. Uh, <laughs> just just draw a line under it. But yeah, you well, we did our well, it was certainly my first ever event as an author. 
Yeah. Which was the the first Monday. Like that's um, it was the first Monday yeah. City Union. First, yeah. Mm. And it was us, Abigail, Dean, Femi. Um, yeah. Now, now part of the Harrogate lot after this year. And uh, yeah, so we well, actually, you did not like, now. Yeah, <laughs> <we're not trying. laughs> so you were you were on my very first panel and you were also my very first panel interviewee Iceland i was Northern. in iceland yeah. you were very good oh thank you i think i think we did all right i think it was fun it was, it was so much fun it was so well the thing is, it was so interesting for me being able to ask people about kind of about your books that had all been drawn from personal experience and, mm-hmm. and professional experience it was super cool and getting to kind of read outside my strict genre for it. You know, I'm a SWAT, so getting to do the homework was the best bit. <laughs> I think it is a different experience when you're on the other side. You're asking the questions as opposed to sitting there and waiting for the questions to be put to yeah. you. <laughs> and also, Balls, you know, when you were talking about before, making sure everyone has their equal yeah. amount of time. But you did that well. But also, oh, well, I think you had, yeah, you did. But also, I think, well, you had a group of people, not like blowing my own trumpet, but you had a group of people who were very aware <laughs> that there yeah. was other people on the stage <laughs> with them. Because as you, as you said, I've been on some stages and you're like, mate, I got a minute out. Yeah. My, <laughs> my answer. But the person next to me, they're just talking about like it's their special. Yeah. And if the, and if the, if the moderator doesn't, doesn't do something about that then it can then it can kind of get yeah it can get quite quite bad (laughs) yeah it's it's tricky it's tricky what's the most exciting thing you've done as an author oh what can i legally say you know i was about to say what what are you allowed to tell me (laughs) what am i allowed to say as an author (laughs) because there are some things like like a spy yeah, I know. <laughs> there are some there are some things that I don't say. There are some there are some social media debates that I don't get involved with. I th- <laughs> I think I I think I would say that my the most exciting thing I got to do in the last year, which just felt like the most insane honor, was get to write the 40th anniversary forward for a James Bond continuation novel called Icebreaker by John Gardner, who actually wrote more James Bond novels than Ian Fleming did. It's one of my favourite novels. It's the same age as me. John Gardner is from a town about two miles from where I was born and grew up. And being asked by the by Ian Fleming Publications and the the family to write about what that book means, how important I feel it was in in the world of Bond, was kind of the the kind of honor that I didn't expect to get. Right, I think a writing career, unless you explode out of the gate, is kind of mm. incremental wins. And I had a lot last year, which I've had to remind myself of. I did a Twitter thread a couple of days ago, reminding myself of of the nice things that I'd done to combat any imposter syndrome and you know, getting to be on a panel at Harrogate last year. Fantastic. It's the Glastonbury of, of writing festivals, getting to go to Iceland while be on a panel and then moderate my first panel was absolutely amazing. But that getting to write the 40th anniversary forward for my favorite novel was kind of amazing. That's the, that's the highlight. Yeah. And, that, and that's, 
it's one of those things that's like it's you know it's like when you when you publish a, your first book and you get the ISBN and you're like I am immortal like anything <laughs> else, anything anything can happen to me but I am now like on record I existed I am immortal my stamp on the world is assured because I've got I an ISBN <laughs> It felt it felt like that. It felt like kind of like okay, I am now in that. I've like I'm I'm a, I, you know I've just kind of like I've snuck in to the pantheon, but I'm there. <laughs> You're there. Was it was that before or after you you got shortlisted for the CWA? And it's kind of like oh yeah, it's like so that was still dagger. I, I know that's the yeah. It's it's this is the thing that you kind of have to. This is why I did. So I, I ended last year in a very strange position where I was like, I've never had a more successful year creatively, mm. but because of the type of person I am, that has shifted the goalposts of what success is. So I feel like I'm lagging already. And I had to, I realized I had to kind of, I had to write this bloody self-aggrandizing ego boosting thread on twitter to remind myself of these of these amazing things and the yeah the long listing for the for the cwa dagger was was incredible that that was in april i was stood yeah with my mother on the beach outside portugal outside lisbon in portugal dipping our toes in the atlantic because my mother for some reason had never stood in the atlantic i don't know how she'd managed that so we went and stood in the atlantic and then like all things like you just get tagged on something on twitter at like seven in the evening and suddenly you find out that you've been long-listed for the most prestigious spy writing award there is so that was that was april i took I took when I, I went to Marseille and took Icebreaker with me to reread, and that must have been May. And the the publication was the start of July, which was the fortieth anniversary. Yeah, it was wonderful. I had it all right. Yeah, you know, you're talking about your Twitter. You're talking about your Twitter thread, and you're you know going looking back, and it reminded me of this quote that I reposted somewhere. I thought it's so good, and it's and it frankly said. It's not boasting, it's reflecting. And I think, yeah, that's exactly what you did. You just reflect that's really nice. on all yes, of your yes. achievements. I think that's, yes. yeah, I think we should. I think yeah. a lot of people feel like, oh, we can't talk about these things. I'm like, no, talk about no. it, celebrate it. Yeah. And you and you, you always have to remind yourself, and I think this is a big shift that's that's a shift backwards almost. Like things like Twitter and Instagram and stuff, they 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 started off as yeah, they were, it was a microblogging site, or it was just mm. a way of collecting you online. It then became marketing and advertising yeah. and brand building. And then they messed with the algorithm and all of that collapsed. So now it kind of is back to, you know, you doing your little blog, bigging yourself up, reflecting. It's, <laughs> it's, more, it's more about showing you to the world rather than kind of pushing a message yeah. out. I don't know what marketing departments or publishers are going to do because they relied on their authors just posting stuff on Twitter. <laughs> so they're going to have to work oh. out something now. But it's it's nice to have that pressure taken off. It is, but then I also, I also think that I still feel like they're still holding on to, it's like yeah. a bad relationship. <laughs> they're still holding on to Twitter. And I'm looking, I'm on the outside and I'm like, you need to let go. You need to go. move on, find a new person. <laughs> 
go. There is someone better. So I don't know who. Yeah. There's someone better out there. Because it, it doesn't have, I don't feel, I mean, I'm talking about um, Twitter specifically. It doesn't have the same outreach that it used to have. Like when I first yeah. went on there. And I'm like, there, there's someone new out there. Just just have yeah. faith. <laughs> and actually, what this is this is something that I did, and again, oh god, it's just, now it just feel like it's bragging. So another nice thing I did last year, which was a bit of self-starting, was I pitched the uh, I pitched a, a historical story to the Express for the Express Features because my third novel in the Knox series is set against the backdrop of the 1967 pro-communist protests in Hong Kong. Which it was a really interesting kind of reverse of recent history, and over this summer, Hong Kong was starting to kind of bubble away again a bit, and it felt like an opportune time to pitch a story. And I, you know, ummed and ahed and thought and was like, "No one wants to hear from me. This is ridiculous. You know how how dare I think about this?" And then, like. Oh God, it must have, like, I, I think I sent the DM on Twitter at like 5 p.m. on a Friday. So I could absolutely guarantee there would be no response. It would disappear into the ether. <laughs> but I, 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 I messaged Matt Nixon, who's the features editor at The Express, who's an absolute fantastic gentleman and true supporter of books and the stories that authors have to tell around books. And he DM'd me straight back asking for my phone number to, to have a conversation then. And I'm like, it's by now, it's like six o'clock on a Friday. I'm like, this, yeah. And it was, <laughs> you know, that, that was, that was a wonderful thing of like, how do I, how do I get a story out to a public, to a potential readership for, for my books that might be interested, that might get the historical reference. And it turned out it was print journalism. And it's like, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. <laughs> you know, writing, writing features in newspapers for people to read. It was fantastic. So I highly recommend that. That might be the future. Social media is dead. Print journalism. Print journalism. We've gone back. Yeah. Before I ask you your four questions, because I'm very conscious of the time, which I'm always surprised. I'm like, oh my God, so much time has passed. But it means, it had, it means we had a good conversation, Tim. But what are you working on, if you can say? But, you know, you've done your three Knox novels. Like, what are your plans? So I... And this goes back to that kind of that thing of like ending ending last year, not sure where I was doing. What I've been doing for the last couple of months is going through my archives of ideas because I think all writers come up with stuff and file them away, like email themselves, stick it in a notes app, whatever. And I I had a bit of a crisis of confidence thinking, well, I've written this trilogy what what next like do i have any other ideas was that it and i found it so rewarding to go back into stuff that i'd thought about a decade ago or you know things that you know discovering things i'd completely forgotten i'd written like nine page outlines of of stories and just find them and go kind of like okay no i there's creativity in here. There's 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 wide creativity in here. Let's yeah. there's let's, a well. Like, yeah, there's a, like there's a, there's a well to be plumbed. Like let's let's bring them all together. Let's create a bank. Let's like refine them, polish them. You know, give them give them the time and attention they deserve. So that's been that's been quite kind of nourishing. 
in terms of you know, in terms of thinking about my creativity for what I'm going to write next, and also reading lots of textbooks about character. <laughs> you and character. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there. You work it out with like book six, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right, Tim. Let me ask you some questions. Are you mm. an introvert or extrovert or a hybrid of the two? So I am what I have always called a Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> which is effectively a, a, a hybrid of the two. I am someone who is absolutely able and enjoys the stage the performance being out engaging with people but i draw my energy from introverted activities i have to have my alone time i have to go for my walk yeah. i have to kind of plug the world out so i am a, yeah that's why yeah, i am i am a performing introvert i would say oh i like that a performing introvert <laughs> okay so what challenge or experience in your life shaped you the most oh writing a book with the word corona in the title <laughs> I mean, it, it was, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was kind of a, that was a, that was a bit of a make or break. I'm like, what am I, am I, am I going to kind of just turn around and walk away from this? Or am I going to cultivate the resilience you need to kind of, you know, see what happens, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, continue on. So yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not the, it wasn't the multi-million pound debut deal, but it was probably extremely, <laughs> extremely formative and instructive for for me as a as a career writer. Did you ever think about changing the title? Because I'm trying to think of the timeline because Corona. I mean, they shut us down March 2020, and you already would have written, submitted, and doing whatever the last so, bits we're doing with the book. From a practical point of view, I was on a Zoom in april with my agent and every everyone at the publisher trying to work out what to do and mm. everything every option and opportunity was on the table until the sales director piped up after 10 minutes and said you do know that the first print run <laughs> has been done um, and that completely changed the conversation because they were like, okay, well, we actually have the books. Like while it was theoretical, the <laughs> yeah, we spent the money. Yeah. <laughs> while it, while it was theoretical, there was the option of changing it or downplaying it, but like, nope, it's there. It's on the top of every page. It's, you know, there's no getting away from oh, it. Oh God. Yeah. So, Cause it's not just the cover, is it? It's on the top of every page. That, yeah. Yeah. So then it became a conversation about, okay, we need to look at how, things unfold how vernacular changes because by the time mm. it came out we were saying covid19 so that was i think that was yeah i think that's what helped a lot yeah. we weren't calling um, it coronavirus no but then we then, but then we were sitting there being like we were all aware that we were sitting there having that conversation in the context of a pandemic and you're like well this is mm. like it this is kind of ridiculous but also normal and life must go on but will it so yeah that was that was odd <laughs> that was a challenge well you know you <laughs> no, definitely I'll describe it as a challenge. You know, when you're talking about about pulp in the books, and I had this image when I was working books, etc. And then some days I'll be in the back in the storeroom and we wouldn't be pulping, but the publishers would just say to us, just take to send cover. us back the front cover. Yeah. So I'll be yeah. sitting there on the floor, ripping off the front covers of books to just send the covers back. And then I'm just yeah. stuck with a bunch of books with no covers. 
Yeah, because when you when you know how the publishing industry works, as you as you know, it like you, yeah. it doesn't make sense. No, you never make it's sense. Like, and then and then my <laughs> my boss was like, "Oh yeah, well you can take the books." I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna have a bunch of books at home with no covers." No covers. You can't give it to someone. Why do they do that? I think because they would probably have to pay for the return postage of the product. So by that point, if the book is just being taken out of circulation, they're cutting their losses. They want the you know they want the cover for records, yeah, and to prove that it then can't then be sold on. But you know, it's it. I, th- I think that is almost the publishing version of the like. Why has Warner Brothers shelved a completed movie? It's that the like. It's the like it's the yeah. it's the like it's the it's the the P and L calculations that don't take into account the actual product. It makes now I know we're now we're going off tangent. They shelf that girl, but I'm like, it's like building a house, and I'm just going to knock it down. It's like, but you've just spent. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out. You just spent half a million building a house, and now you're just going to knock it down. Yeah. How did that make any sense? The tax breaks they got when they were building their house. I know. Last last question, but if you could go back when you were 25 years old and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, oh, read some books about character. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I'd probably have, have have the gumption to start sooner. Yeah. I, 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 waited and prevaricated i could have i could have started sooner been a bit scrappy learned as i went and tried and i think i think i probably would have enjoyed that i've enjoyed what i've done and i've learned what i've done and i've yeah. learned coming at it with the kind of the the age and wisdom <laughs> but i probably could have learned some of those fundamentals of character in my 20s yeah <laughs> I'm not going to rename this kid this podcast. In <laughs> sports, on character. <laughs> he doesn't have any yet. He doesn't <laughs> He's heard of it. He's heard of it. He knows that it's a thing. <laughs> Something you need. In apparently. I mean, three books in really young. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I will get to the end of this. Finally, Tim Glister. Where can listeners find you <laughs> online? So I am on, I am still on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I am theoretically on Blue Sky. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I am at Tim Glister Books at all of them. Oh, what can I say? Tim Glister still learning about character. Thank you so much <laughs> for being part of the conversation podcast. Not the character podcast, but the <laughs> conversation <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of The Conversation with Nadine Matheson Podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with a new guest. So make sure that you subscribe and you'll never miss the next episode. And also don't forget to like, share and leave a review. It really means a lot and it also helps the podcast. And you can also support the podcast on Patreon where every new member will receive exclusive merchandise. Just head down to the show notes and click on the link. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of The Conversation, all you have to do is email theconversation at nadinematheson.com. Thank you and I'll see you next week. <laughs>